And welcome to another episode of the Fundamentals Podcast. I am your host, Harley. Joining me on today's episode is another host of the Chasing Tone Podcast, Richard Oliver. Richard was kind enough to come onto the show and share his love of one of the most enigmatic and iconic figures in music history, and that is David Bowie. Bowie's one of those figures that's just inspired and mystified people throughout the generations, through his various eras in his musical career, down to his acting, down to his hand at painting and fashion. It seems there's nothing he couldn't do. So really, this conversation is one of, I think, inspiration and a study of what it means to be an artist and so much more. We had a lot of fun talking about Bowie, reminiscing on some of Richard's personal favourite songs and eras, live concert events, and favourite cameos and appearances in film and television. So, without further ado, let's get to the episode. This is David Bowie with Richard Oliver. Hello, Richard, and welcome to the Fundamentals podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's a, a real pleasure. Oh, pleasure is all mine. Uh, so I reached out to you and we had a chat about quite a few different topics, but one that kind of jumped out, I think, from, from you, and I, and I certainly was eager to talk about it, is David Bowie. Yes, well, it's good timing as well, or bad timing, depending on which way you look at it, because it's just been the 75th David Bowie anniversary birthday thing, but also then, therefore like fifth or sixth anniversary of him passing away. So it's always a bit weird this mm. time of year. But yes, um, I am a complete Bowie nut. I can't deny it. Well, I, I'm really curious about this. Um, so I just have to really know from the start, when did this uh, obsession begin for you? So it's, it's actually, I am not a typical Bowie nut. I'm just going to say that from the beginning. So okay. I, I was born in the mid-70s. Space Oddity was number one when I was born, I think, actually, or around the time. And I loved Star Wars. So David Bowie wrote three songs that had a space theme. So, like, five-year-old me, jumping mm -hmm. forward to about 1980 or whatever, when I first really got into him, was like, this guy's written about Mars, he's written about, like, Space, space Oddity, and he's written about a star man. I love this. So I, I got into him because I was a small boy who liked 70s sci-fi, which is the most random reason ever <laughs> to like an artist. But that that is genuinely what got me there. Right. Um, and I had an older brother. I still have an older brother who's who's like 
12 years older than me and he was really into him. Um, he was more into other bands like Queen and Rush and ACDC, but that's another story. Mm. Uh, but also I had some cousins who were also massively into Bowie. So it was always around me. And uh, kind of like when I was maybe seven or eight, I just thought, well, yeah, I, I like this music. I'm going to become a fan of his music because that's what all the cool kids do. Because around me, my cousins, who were the cool kids, were listening to Bowie. So I literally went to it at a time when nobody was really <laughs> listening to Bowie uh, because I thought it was the cool thing to do and because I loved space and no other reason other than that. Well, I don't think there's any such thing as a wrong reason for getting into something necessarily. <laughs> and that's one I could certainly relate to. I mean, I've, I'll be honest, I... Uh... I'm not the biggest fan because I haven't really dived into his back catalogue, but those songs you just mentioned, they're ones that popped up on my radar when I was a kid. And now that I think about it, it's probably for similar reasons because I was a massive Star Wars nut as a kid. And so, yeah, when you hear a song about, like you say, space and travel, you go, oh, what's this? You immediately perk up and think, what's this strange, interesting song? Exactly that. It, 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 funnily enough, the, the other song that I kind of liked from the time was Super Trooper by ABBA because I thought it was about stormtroopers from uh, Star Wars. <laughs> so, honestly, if my... And, and, and another one was Bicycle Races by Queen because it mentions Superman and Star, Star Wars, Wars and Jaws, yeah. right? I was like, <laughs> yeah, th these are my songs because they're talking about my films. So... Yeah, it was a it was a different time, I guess. Uh, you know, pre the internet, we we had much more limited options for seeing and hearing music, and I do very you know strongly remember seeing Space Oddity, uh, probably on top of the Pops or on the Kenny Everett show or something like that, and it really imprinting as a sci-fi story, which is brilliant because of course we all know it's actually totally about drugs. Well depends who you listen to but you know, <laughs> it's the received wisdom right but you know something that is always fascinating me about um david bowie is he's one of those that's i think had a, a really fascinating career as an artist he, he strikes me as somebody who is constant was constantly reinventing himself because he has like sort of different eras doesn't he i mean that's the classic thing people sort of say you know he was the chameleon i was like well chameleons blend in with their backgrounds so maybe not but mm. he definitely went through 10 distinct phases as a minimum as an artist and as you say completely reinvented himself each time which was seemingly brilliant but it was always stolen from other people because oh. that's what artists do we look mm. at the things that influence us and we steal from them subliminally or consciously, and we repurpose them. And he was a master of repurposing whatever it was he really enjoyed. So uh, everything he did was original, for sure, but you've got all of these rich roots of where he got it from. He was actually quite a geeky, intellectual guy. Um, he loved to read and all of that sort of stuff from, from what I know about him. And, and yeah, he was just brilliant at coming up with these ideas. And again, 1970s, 80s Britain was a different landscape completely. So uh, he he was alive in probably one of the most exciting times to be a musician, I think. Um, you know, I think, I, I hate to say that 
that the music landscape has changed because of streaming, but I think we can all accept it has now. So Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. In fact, this is kind of something we've talked a lot about in um in fact one of the more recent music episodes we talked about Oasis and mm-hmm. you know, we had we had a discussion there about how the landscapes have changed and sort of bands like that. It's rare that they come along and blow up the way that they did. And and so yeah, I, I guess you could put the same question to someone like David Bowie and the different eras and things that he's done. It's you know, would it have had the same impact perhaps that it does today or would he have been lost in the maelstrom of, of all the other people vying for attention and doing similar things? A really interesting question. You know, the, the, the purists would love to say, of course, he would stand head and shoulders above everybody, but mm. I think it's much more difficult these days. Certainly when I first started listening to him, it was impossible for me to get hold of any of his music. Uh, which which really informed how my tastes grew, actually, and I'll I'll sort of dig into that a a little bit. But, you know, record shops over here only sold what the record companies allowed them to sell, and certainly when I started buying in maybe 83, 84, there were very few of Bowie's 70s-era LPs available. Um, So there was always a bit of a mystique about it as well. There was a bit of a rarity factor just by getting hold of these albums, Whereas now I can pop onto iTunes. The minute I get into an artist, I just download their entire back catalogue and I never listen to the weird stuff. I just listen to the stuff that has the most stars. And so you miss out on that experience. Whereas with Bowie, my my intro was my brother had a compilation which had thankfully a load of the 70s stuff on it. And then I found under a cousin's bed his 1980 Scary Monsters um, album which is the least 70s Bowie album there is and was like all Robert Fripp guitars Pete Townsend scratchy noises weird avant-garde stuff but because I was on this Bowie journey whether I liked it I forced myself to listen to it and it's a brilliant album it's, it's probably his last great great album Mm. Um, and, you know, has some of the classics like Ashes to Ashes and, and Fashion on it. But mm. it also has just some ridiculous guitar work, and it probably informed some of my uh, earliest kind of acceptance of the avant-garde, because okay. that's what that's what Bowie was all about, like pushing those boundaries. So I didn't come into it the regular route you know i didn't listen to ziggy as a child and all of these things i went straight to the hard stuff it's yeah. like literally like the first time you go, would go to a pub being handed like several triple whiskeys and being told this is alcohol enjoy some <laughs> it was like the most bowie album ever which by definition means it's the least bowie album of that period right Sorry to confuse you with that, but yeah, that is that that is where it came from, dude. No, that's totally fine. And just so you know, for the record, the longest uh, answer to a question, and which I said absolutely nothing, is twenty minutes. That's the record is still held on that. So <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't aware. I would have totally, if you'd have told me, I would have gone for that. I I I, I could have kept that going for an hour. I think. I had another guy. Um, that was that was Chris Lipe. He's a, he's a great vocal coach and um, just fascinating story. Um, and then the other chap was Tony Black, who came on to talk about uh, the Star Trek franchise, and he managed to distill the entire thing in ten minutes. So basically, what I'm saying, Richard, is if 
you want to get within the top three, you've got to aim between <laughs> 10 to 20 minutes for at least one of your answers. I'll leave that with you. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt it. I mean, naturally, I, I may ramble off on, on a tangent. So uh, better that I do it naturally than try and try and catch you out, I think. Doing Star Trek in 10 minutes is really impressive, though. Uh, I'm yeah, I, I had that. to say, I think I even put like applause and stuff in because I was, I was genuinely impressed by, by how he did it. But, uh, but anyway, I mean, speaking of with, uh, with his different eras and you know you're thrown in the deep end it sounds like with bowie i'd love to know um do you have a, a personal favorite era then of bowie? Uh, i definitely do there is a, a period known as his berlin trilogy where he did the albums essentially station to station low and lodger um and heroes are the four albums Station to Station was just before this period, but those four albums, which I think span 76 to 79, are my favourite albums by a long way. I used to have a joke with an ex of mine, which was, if you listened to Low by David Bowie, that was David Bowie inventing goth, because David Bowie invented every type of music. But it really was. It was the prototype for a lot of that post-punk 80s, goth, industrial wave, sort of Joy Division, Bauhaus, bands like that, all looked at Bowie and his his Berlin period is sublime and, and Station to Station, the album just before that, which famously he can't remember recording because he was absolutely mm. uh, melted on illegal substances. Um, <laughs> it, brilliant, brilliant works and, and not necessarily for any of the well-known tracks at all. And if anyone listening ever feels like digging into something interesting, those are the albums to go for. Because, again, he surrounded himself with immense collaborators. He had Robert Fripp, Brian Eno, who was working with Iggy Pop at the time. Uh, right. And it was just such a, a brilliant creativity uh, that came out of that. And Tony Visconti was engineering... Uh, who who's probably one of the best engineers uh, of that period. So, yeah, it was brilliant, and that is my period. But I also have a lot of love for his early stuff, and there's, again, a funny reason why. Um, if I go back to the buying Bowie stuff in the 80s thing, there used to be uh, a, a trick that they used to do, which was put a random photo on the front of an album give it a different name, and try and sell it to you. And I bought something called the, uh, was it the Best of Bowie? No, or David Bowie Ziggy Stardust. It was a two-tape compilation, and it had a picture of him in, like, full 70s-era Ziggy stuff. But it was actually a compilation of his Decca era, which was the 1960s, and it was him trying to be kind of like Anthony Newley meets the Beatles meets the who, the who and the small faces. And honestly, it's a difficult period of Bowie to love. A very difficult period. Famously, this was when he did The Laughing Gnome, which is his comedy track. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> I've never heard of this. And there's a good reason, because he tried to bury <laughs> it, despite around his 50th birthday... Um, radio polls being inundated that he should record a new version of it or perform it. But it is a <laughs> terrible comedy track with him making puns with, like, speeded-up vocals um, and kind of a, a weird, poppy um, brass section going down. 
Very weird. Uh, the whole period was really weird in the in the late sixties. It was, you know, it was like an Austin Powers movie, all of it. Um, so really, uh, yeah, I, honestly, and again, so this was the only tape I was able to purchase. Uh, mm. There was no internet. There were no downloads. I was like nine. And uh, I had to work my way through that too. So I kind of love that period too because it's it was there from when I was a kid, but very difficult to love. Yeah, but then, do you know, I think there's something kind of beautiful about that in a way. Like it, it just sort of comes back to what um, I was talking about with Tom and Oasis. It's like when you get, you get an album or a tape in that sort of era when that was all you had. Mm. I think you really appreciated it more. Oh, huge. You know, and you really fell in love with it. And even the weird tracks and stuff, you you know, it wasn't just like, oh, skip this one. You sort of thought, well, this is all I've got, you know, so I'm going to just, I'm going to try and see or find something in here that I can like, even if it's just the drums or, you know, a bass line or something really small. No, you're 100% correct. You had no choice. So you, I, I probably, <clears throat> I probably had like seven cassettes to my name, uh, like, up until about the age of 10, uh, you know, and I played them all till they wore out. One of them was, luckily, two of his best 70s era albums, Ziggy Stardust and Hunky Dory, which one of my mum's friends gave me on a copied tape. And that I very much remember playing out until that did wear out. And the other one (laughs) was Aladdin Sane, which was his other fantastic glam era album, which yeah. um, it was, again, like, and, and this is why I love Bowie, because he he kind of punctuates my entire life with moments. So the first time I bought the Aladdin Sainam, I was not aware that on uh, on the second verse, I think, or even, the, no, in the first verse of the song Time, he says a bad swear. And oh. by British recording standards, a very bad swear. And mm. I remember being shocked by it. So much so that, you know, do you remember like when you were a kid how it was embarrassing to watch a sex scene in a film when your parents were in the room? Still is, but yeah. (laughs) I mean, by the time you get to my age, you're like, ah, this is boring now. But um, (laughs) I was embarrassed to play this in front of my parents because it had a bad swear in it. And we're not Mm. really talking, you know, Samuel L. Jackson bad swears, but by... 11 year old schoolboy me i was like oh this is this is this is dynamite yeah. you know so um mm. yeah interesting i mean I, I can see the love for kind of both eras I, I feel like out of the two you've mentioned so far that the glam one i would say is probably the more well-known right yeah so that's a lot of his bigger albums his bigger um, like you said, Ziggy Stardust. If you say that, most people go, oh, yeah, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. For sure. know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and that was a groundbreaking era. No doubt about it. Mm. Not my... F- but but again, that's the era I loved when I was maybe between the ages of 10 and 13, 14 mm. at best. And then the later stuff was the stuff I really loved between the ages of like 14 and, well, now, to be fair. Uh, um, but it, it, there's a kind of maturity to his musical stages that went along really nicely with my teenage life and my upbringing in kind of, uh, you know, just west of London and, and, and all of that sort of good stuff. So, yeah, he's yeah. Um, he, he's a classic. But, of course, it isn't just about the music. He was doing films and all sorts of other things 
back in the 80s, which, you know, rose him to superstardom, as they say. Yeah, and, and I feel like with each era, it, they, they all feel like an, an appropriate soundtrack for the time in which they came out. You've articulated that perfectly. That's exactly, exactly what I felt like too, right? But I was kind of trying mm. to get a bit of it five years in advance or in behind, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, do you, well, I don't know if you know much about his, you must know a bit about his creative process and that was that always sort of an intentional part of what he did and why he did these eras? Uh, no, I th- so I think he, he was an intellectual um, and I think mm. he liked to reinvent himself because he got bored and that I can totally okay. relate to. He hated all of the kind of prim and proper side of music. I, I think he refused... Um, an OBE once so that was kind of he, he wanted to be an artist he really wanted to be known for his art famously he used the William Burroughs cut-up technique in songs like Moon Age Daydream where he would write out the lyrics and then cut all the words up and scramble them together on a table and rearrange them till he came up with a song which again was really innovative for its time you know we're talking about a time when every single song was basically how to say I love you, baby, to your girlfriend to a 12-bar blues rock song. And he was writing songs about the end of the world and kind of Crowley, um, you know, black magic and things like that were very much part of his his world at that point, not necessarily as a practitioner, but as as a student of what these guys were writing about. So he was just a really massive consumer of art and i think if you consume enough art you start to actually shape your own art and unless you're completely dead inside which hopefully no one is um (laughs) yeah hopefully not but yeah i i always got that sense of him that yeah he was always looking for something new and i feel like it keeps the uh the music interesting as well right as as uh something we've talked about a couple of times with different bands and stuff it's in fact, this reminds me of the conversation I had with uh, with Blake, uh, your dear co co host, <laughs> about you know how bands, some bands can really struggle if they're part of a um, a kind of genre that's you know uh, how do I just say this? Basically, if they're the band that's sort of a a sound of that moment, if that makes sense. You know, like yep. they it's like a like a new metal, for example, is one I immediately think of. Or these kind of bands, like it's hot for a minute and everybody does it, and it all sounds popular. But then how do you keep that going, you know, as an artist and a legacy? And how do you change? How do you evolve? How do you keep a fan base? But it feels like David Bowie's approach here is basically, I don't care about any of that. You know, I'm just going to keep reinventing it every time. So keep up, you know. And by that, he can sort of chop and change. And he's not really stuck to right. one genre. You can't define it. Right. And, and I don't think he set out to do that. I think he fell into it. Mm. I think like any other artist, when you create enough art you become better at creating art. So you create more art and you become better quickly until you reach that critical mass. And I'm pretty sure he didn't set out to be, you know, David Bowie, the reinventor, but his first incarnation, which, as I say, was 1960s mod boy, that definitely didn't work. Then then he went a bit hippy-dippy in the late 60s. That... And that's when he actually released Space Oddity, uh, which became one of his you know, best-known singles eventually. 
But that period didn't work for him. So then he went, right, I'm going to go all uh, fluffy-headed and sequin suit. And, and that resonated. And he was like, right, I've, I've hit something here. And he played that out, but he left the audience wanting more. Famously, he sacked his whole band at the Hammersmith gig, which is the televised um, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust concert from D.A. Pennebaker. Uh, and, and no one knew in his band that that's what he was going to do. Like, literally, on stage, on camera, he said, this is the last gig we're ever doing together. And then he flew off to America and got into his whole Plastic Soul era, whilst the rest of the world was like, but we want glam Bowie. And I think that was a brilliant move. I think that set the ball rolling for, this is not a guy who's just here to service what his fans want now. He's trying to figure out what he wants, and if we like it, then we follow him. And if we don't, well, we're going to have some rude awakenings. And he, he didn't always get it right either. He made some mm. classic missteps, dancing in the street with Mick Jagger in the mid I was just about to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Kind of hard to forget that one, isn't so it? So again, I mean, it's kind of funny for me because I really came into my love for Bowie in about 85, 86, mm. and it was a difficult period to be a Bowie fan. Although he released the song Absolute Beginners, which was a classic, I still love it. He also did Dancing in the Street. He released the Tonight album, which is probably one of the worst albums he's ever released. And then Never Let Me Down, which is almost certainly the other one of the worst albums he's ever released. Um, but it was the period that I first got to see him live. And uh, I remember still to this day, super vividly, 11-year-old me sat outside school my mum came to pick me up. We drove to Wembley Stadium, went in. We had seats like Rose Z. And I, all <laughs> I could see was like this little red dot on stage, but I could hear this live music. And it was Peter Frampton playing guitar. So, you know, wow. Frampton is a great guitar player and a great singer. And I didn't appreciate any of this at the time. And it's probably not one of his, you know, most loved concerts, but it, it was my first experience of live music. And that was it. I was like... I'm definitely always going to be a Bowie fan now. There's no doubt yeah. that set it in. That is such a formative experience. I think that that first gig. I can think of my my first few gigs are bands that yeah I'm I'm absolute diehard fans for now. Um, yeah, you never forget that experience. Who, who was your first think. gig that kind of made you go? I I love this band. I just um, for me. Well, I, I said before my first gig was Green Day because I was oh a yeah massive, yeah yeah pop punk that was my, my era like you know i was 10 11 when i discovered that saw them when i was 14 and that was amazing um and the next one which is my all-time favorite bands uh alter bridge i'd yep. gotten into and it just so happened they were coming through bristol uh, where i used to live and so my dad very kindly went down got a ticket and and that was like a whole nother level. That was when I sort of sat there, similar to you, like right towards the back. I mean, it's the Colson Hall, so anyone who knows that venue, there is not a bad seat in that venue. Right. But I'm right the way at the top at the back, but just sat there just in awe of what I was watching. But see, and, the, yeah. the difference is, is those are bands that for a 14-year-old, 12, 13, <laughs> are right to go and see. Like, that's yeah. like, that's cool. Going to see David Bowie as an 11-year-old was not cool. <laughs> I was the least cool kid in the world, <laughs> despite wanting nothing other than to be cool, because in the 70s, Bowie was cool. I, I, yeah. I missed that boat. 
you know, I, I'd, I'd kind of missed the Let's Dance cool era. I was right in the middle of the dancing in the street. Bowie is the least cool person. And, yeah, uh, it was a <laughs> difficult time to be a Bowie fan. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, but you're still here now, Richard. So it all worked out. Well, <laughs> I mean, again, <laughs> what's beautiful is how his music has meant so much in different eras. So... As a teenager, I spent a lot of time in New York with my cousins who who lived in uh, the Queens part of New York, and they were a few years older than me and loved Bowie. and And Bowie's music was very appropriate for driving around New York. and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is cool." And that's when the sort of seventies era, uh, late seventies era, Bowie really kind of took off in my head, and kind of like that was just awesome. So I listened to those albums. I'm taken back to that era. I then remember in like the the noughties, the the, the very beginning of uh, actually the two thousands and and whatever, like mm-hmm. I was bored of him completely. I mean, I was listening to totally different types of music, and mm. he played a couple of times, and I didn't even bother going to see him because I was like, he's just trying to jump on the dr- drum bass bandwagon at the time because he had a bit of a drum and okay. bass thing. I didn't like any of his stuff. In retrospect, some of it was actually brilliant, of course. But there was a period where I'd kind of fallen out of love with his music because there was just too much other stuff to do. But again, then as an adult, I came back to it and found new stuff in all of it. And then my daughter started listening to it. And that was kind of like, right, we're starting the whole cycle again. So Yeah, because he, he, he feels like somebody that never went away. I mean, again, I'm I'm 27 and it's like he's sort of not big in my generation. So no. like me growing up, it was, you know, it was pop punk or you know sort of there was a lot of r&b and stuff like that around depending on what genre you fell into but uh yeah david bowie was somebody that you're always aware of you know you know oh yeah he did a couple of movies and he did some songs in the 70s and 80s but that was about it yep. you know but again i feel like he's it's a long-lasting legacy and I, i've heard you talk about this a couple of times on chasing tone and i want to dissect this a little more that you seem to have picked up on that there's a bit of a resurgence of him now yeah, to the point where every day I'm like, please, on Facebook, I do not wish to just see like a million and one people talking about him. So definitely when an artist dies, they become more popular. That is oh, yeah. a well-known phenomenon. Uh, mm. And, you know, it's a shame. Um, and when Bowie died, I had no idea how popular he would become because he has become huge. He's a massive industry, much bigger now than he was when he was alive, arguably. Um, wow. And to the point where I almost feel like I should have a T-shirt that says I liked Bowie before it was cool to like Bowie because <laughs> kind of like it is cool now to like him. You'll find his influence everywhere. You'll see his music on the trendy adverts. There are, you know, 17-year-olds on Facebook crying every time his you know birthday comes part. Like, we've lost the space commander and all this crap. And I'm like... You, you mm. tell me that in 1987 when you were listening to Never Let Me Down. Please, come on now. So, <laughs> obviously, there is a massive amount of halo that gets added to somebody after they died. And I respect that he was a very, very influential artist. But there have been many, many very influential artists in my time. And I, he, he was one of the greats, for sure. But so have been a lot of other people from that period. And I, I I think there's just too much focus on him now because he stood out a bit. 
Um, and it's, yeah, sounds almost negative of me because, of course, I want more people to listen to his music because I think it's brilliant. But I also don't think his legacy should just be this complete rose-tinted, he was this, you know, complete visionary. He wasn't always. He had his his rubbish moments. He had his drug-addled moments. He had his, you know, famously he sort of did what looked like a Nazi salute at, whilst right. driving around in, like, a open-top 50s car wearing, like, a long trench coat. So there was a moment where people wondered whether that was where he was going. I don't think it was. I think he'd just done too much cocaine. Um, but, yeah, not... not like a clean artist to to follow at all and i think that's what people will will find if they dig but yeah i'm i'm a little peeved at the kind of current amount of uh, bowie that's on my timeline and that that's saying something interesting it's, it's a do you know what it's an interesting point of view and i can kind of see where you're coming from um and i, I do agree that yeah i think you're right sometimes when it comes to music and artists in general we can be very rose-tinted, as you said. And, you know, I mean, this show is all about celebrating the things in pop culture and, you know, and, and embracing that positivity. But at the same time, I think it's good to be honest. And, you know, I'm reminded of the conversation I had with my good friend earlier about the Beatles and, like, you know, the Beatles, even the recent documentary that's just come yeah, out. which was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Everyone should watch that. Yeah, it's, it's on my list, um, for sure. But, like, I've seen bits of it and what I've heard is... It's very raw. Yeah, it shows you like the creative sort of talent that was there, but also the dysfunction and the arguments and the realities of what was going on at the time. And so, yeah, I think you're right. When you look back at legacy of someone like Bowie, and it stands to reason, right, that if you're somebody who's chopping and changing what you do constantly, or, you know, you're just embracing the creative drive and you're always focusing on a new genre and you're, you're playing around with new soundscapes, new instruments not everyone's going to be a winner. Not every song you write is going to be perfect. No. It's rare that somebody does that. Yeah, and, you know, I would say 60% of his stuff is genius and 40% of mm. it is mediocre, uh, which is seemingly quite a high ratio, but he put out a lot of mediocre albums that have since kind of been a little bit more praised. But there's a whole industry at the moment of, like, repackaging. They've just released Toy, which was an album he recorded in 2001, which never actually got released. It's been around in bootleg form for years. And they've just released it, but they've released it as a three-alternate version package. And, you know, you get all these box sets for multi-hundreds of pounds on the thing. There's a reason he didn't release certain things in his lifetime. And it's not because they were his best things that he was keeping secret for when he died. It's because they weren't great. And so I am realistic about the output that comes out. But as a creative artist, you, you can't knock anything yeah. that, that he's tried yeah. for trying. Uh, and, and that is to be celebrated. He was super visionary in so many ways. Um, but also let's not forget he was just brilliant at orchestrating other people's talents. You look at the people who have played with him, they've also played with every other like person of that era worth knowing. Yeah, you know? so... Do you know, that's, that's the interesting thing I find, is particularly about 
solo artists and, and solo bands, you know, it's unless you are going in and doing a Dave Grohl and recording all of it the first time on your own, the vast majority of people, it's like they're as good as the people they work with. And I think the people that are humble enough to acknowledge that are worth listening to. And, and it's, it's, a, it's just a valid point to think about. You're right, because, yeah, Bowie's obviously an, an excellent songwriter, no doubt, and a, and a talent. But as you say, and you look at the, the history and look at who he played with, I mean, you mentioned Peter Frampton. He's taking him on tour. If you're, if you're playing alongside him, right. you're going to sound good, you know. <laughs> That's half your job done for you, exactly. It's like, ah, I, I'm just going to wheel out Frampton. And, you know, he had um, a, a slew of famous guitarists. Obviously, he, he brought Mick Ronson to fame. Some would argue that Mick Ronson helped bring Bowie to fame because, you know, Ronson was famously the composer for the strings behind Life on Mars, which is probably Bowie's finest piece of music in, in sort of three and a half minutes. Um, Ronson was that grungy sounding, but still bright Marshall, Les Paul driven sound that he had uh, throughout the 70s. And he went from him to then employing people like, you know, Robert Fripp from King Crimson. Um, he had a, a long time relationship with the guitarist um, Carlos Alomar, who he basically discovered kind of playing funk and soul and that totally changed his sound um latterly he had Reeves Gabrels who was also very experimental Adrian Bilou also of King Crimson uh, and, and you know some amazing solo stuff so he just always knew how to pick really good people around him um some of the drummers he's had are, are, are literally you know the finest on the planet some of the bass players he's had, Carmen Rojas, Gail Ann Dorsey, are just absolute, utter, utter pros at their game. Um, and he's been backed by uh, Mike Garson on keyboard mainly, who was a basically a, a piano genius. So he was really good at surrounding himself in talent. Uh, and as I said, and, and getting produced by Tony Visconti, which, you know, he, brilliant producer. He, he, he made fantastic art with lots of people by all mm. accounts didn't pay everybody very well um which is why i think stevie ray vaughan didn't end up going on tour with him oh okay but um he, yeah he was he was very good at like maximizing other people interesting yeah it, it kind of makes sense because for anyone who knows you know when you get into music or i would argue most art forms it is a collaborative process um, yes so there are exceptions of course but yeah when you're talking about music and you know whether it's live performance or recording again unless you are a multi-instrumentalist then you are relying on the people that you work with um yep yeah yep. and I, I think that makes sense no he was he was always a pioneer of of uh technology mm. um famously using a stylophone on on space oddity but also i'm pretty sure I forget the name, the Mellotron, that was on one of his, and, and that's why Rick Wakeman was brought in, because he was one of the only people to be able to keep a Mellotron in tune. I think it was right. a, a, a ridiculous instrument that after eight seconds just warbled itself out of tune. Mm. Um, f again, in the um, in, in the noughties, he started experimenting with drum and bass. There's an acid jazz album, you know, his Black Tie, White Noise from 91, 92, was basically him like listening to 
things like Jamiroquai were quite popular then. There was a lot of R&B. It's probably about the year that you were born, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he he did a whole album of that stuff because he was all loved up with Iman. But there were still some a couple of absolute corking tracks on it. So he always had his eye on, you know, technology, collaborators and fashion. And I think that is the complete artist in so many ways. Um, yeah, because that's, that's another side of him that I find interesting. And I have, I must admit, I don't know a lot about this is, uh, yeah, the fashion side of things is sort of, that was part of it, wasn't it? Part of the package was he would be very into like his costumes and makeup and sort of making characters for his music. I'm almost ashamed to tell this story, especially on a podcast. But um, <laughs> <Go on. laughs> at, at primary school, we had to do like a sort of presentation assembly where we would all come in dressed as the jobs that we had gone on to after leaving school. Oh, yeah. And I came in dressed as Bowie. I had a... Uh, and, and and this is why my mum did look at me sometimes and think, what the hell are you on? But again, it's all about space. So I had like the sort of sun on the head, which he did in the Ziggy Stardust era, <laughs> and like really bad clothes. I mean, this is the era of flex trousers, triple denim, stonewashed denim. So I, I had no hope. And I sort of had my acoustic guitar and, and yeah, I tried to dress up as him. And I think for a period, I tried to have my hair a bit like Ziggy Stardust. Uh, it failed really, really badly. I'm, I'm so <laughs> embarrassed that I've actually said that on air. But yeah, he was known for his striking visual images. Um, I was also always slightly overweight or quite overweight. That's never a good look for a Bowie. If you're going to be a Bowie, you've got to be a skinny Bowie. To be a chubby Bowie, that <laughs> never worked for me. So right. I, I knew, luckily, I, I discovered then, age 10, 11, that I would never look like Bowie enough, never try again. But um, it, absolutely, he was visually striking and, and that resonated in an era of three channels, four channels of TV, top of the pops, everybody basically looking either like a punk band or a pop band. And then you kind of had that glam bit in the middle, which was always quite... I don't know, it just looked interesting. Of course, this was when we all had very small TVs and couldn't see how bad the special effects were on these videos. They were <laughs> really bad. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing the uh, the story there. And if it makes Sorry. you feel any better, in a similar day at my school, I uh, I dressed up as Slash, which well, doesn't work cool. if you're a pasty white Englishman. <laughs> no, well, I mean, no, but it's cool. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> Bowie, not cool in 1986. Slash... I'm assuming well, it was probably slash in like you know late 2010 or early 20 you know early uh, yeah sorry mid to late 2000s not really not really he <laughs> was people looking at me like what, well, what, what are you late. meant to be <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit late but if you'd have done it five years earlier you'd have been cutting edge my friend so yeah probably but um, there we go but no I think that's um it's a fascinating part of of uh of his whole look and you know I, I wonder if that was all part of what led him into acting as well, because that was a big part of his his career, as you mentioned earlier, that kind of pushed yeah, him forward. I think he always wanted to be known as a good actor. Right. Uh, the, he, and and he, he wasn't a bad actor. There are films he's done. Now, again, my mum must have had some weird thoughts about me, because I, I grew up in a single-parent <laughs> family. My dad left home when I was kind of nine. Right. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure my mum thought I was sexually oriented in a different way than I am, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I didn't see what I was 
giving out as clues, but clearly, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm straight and I've been married to Anna for 25 years, but clearly a, a young lad who likes David Bowie and then watches a film like Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence, yeah. which I only wanted to watch it because it had David Bowie in it. And you've got to remember, we had no ability to see pictures of the stars we wanted back then. So I saw this film and I didn't realise it was essentially like a, a kind of gay love story between like British army and Australian army and Japanese captors and all of this stuff. I just knew it had David Bowie in it, but his acting in it was brilliant. <laughs> Um, so I was like, yeah, I mean, he can clearly act. And then he just released this whole slew of films where he really looked terrible acting in <laughs> until Labyrinth came out, which I think was 86, probably 87 when, when I first saw it. Yeah. And, like, that was visually stunning because the special effects were brilliant. Everyone took the mickey out of Bowie's acting in it. It was a, a like a cla- almost a spitting image sketch. But I think that's the film that has cemented him in the childhood of so many people um, and and will last the test of time as a result. Well, yeah, and I, again, it's it's not my generation, but I'm aware of Labyrinth and I've, I've seen most of it. And like, it is one of those, it's so well known. I think yeah. if you look up David Bowie and, you know, just put him into Google, you'll see, no doubt, see Ziggy Stardust, his music, but you'll definitely see a picture of him as right. the, the Goblin King. As the Goblin you know? King. <laughs> I, I always think of the brilliant Flight of the Concords episode where Bowie yes. visits them in three eras. David and Bowie. One of the, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm so space funny. Bowie. It's so good. It's, it's so, so yeah. well oh. done. Uh, <laughs> Brett. 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 Jermaine, what are you doing? It's not Jermaine. It's 1972 David Bowie from the Ziggy Stardust tour. Wow. You look a lot like Jermaine. No... I'm David Bowie. Hmm. What are you doing in my room? This is a dream, Brett. It's all part of your freaky dream. Oh, right. Am I freaking you out, Brett? Is this a freaky dream? I've had some pretty freaky dreams. Have you? Yeah, I had one where I was a guinea pig, but with my face. And I had another one where I was a, um, I was a giraffe. But then when you yeah, look... Okay, listen, Brett, I don't have much time, man. I'm just here to tell you, don't worry about your body image. People used to give me crap about being thin all the time, but I just broke through their false barriers. What about the novelty music paparazzi? Oh, the media monkeys and the junket junkies will invite you to the plastic pantomime. Throw their invites away. Not really sure what you're talking about. I want to give you one more piece of advice. Get an eye patch, man. Sorry? Get an eye patch. Oh, yeah, I've got an eye patch. Do you? Yeah. Wear it. Okay. Wear the eye patch, Brett. Wear the funky, funky eye patch. Bye, Brett. Bye, bye, David Bowie. Heed my advice. Wear Watch the, the eye table. Patch, Brett. But yeah, the the, the labyrinth uh, film was brilliant for his uh, screen presence, um, and I loved it because at the time. I mean, Fraggle Rock had just come out. Muppets were still cool for an 11, 12-year-old, probably growing out of them pretty quickly at that point. But uh, we'll, we'll say I had them. But the special effects were really good for its time. Yeah. Um, not so good when you are able to watch it on HD. Um, <laughs> but he also did a film, and, and this is a bizarre one, because this led to a, a really weird moment in my life. He did a great horror film called The Hunger, 
right. Catherine Deneuve. And again, I think, if memory serves me, 1988, 1981. Um, but the opening to The Hunger is the goth band Bauhaus, who came from where sort of I came from, uh, playing Bella Lugosi's Dead in a cage with blue lighting, uh, while Bowie sort of flitted around the club looking cool. And and Bauhaus were essentially a band that were not only really influenced by Bowie, but had covered Ziggy Stardust. And Mm. then when I heard their cover of Ziggy Stardust, I had to question reality, because... (laughs) Like I think I first heard their version when I was about nine, and it's it to like nine year old me, it sounded so close to Bowie, it upset me. I was like, <laughs> "This is Bowie, but it's not Bowie, and how yeah. can that be?" And it, it, like I say, it was another one of those weird punctuations of my life where Bowie meant something, but really should not have meant anything. But The Hunger is a great film, brilliant soundtrack. Um, the special effects still kind of stand the test of time because it's mainly makeup effects in it, uh, and it inspired pretty much that whole goth vampire movie genre that I think oh. Twilight ended up filling rather rapidly. But um, yeah, if you're going to watch one Bowie film ever, I would recommend The Hunger. Um, if you're going to watch two. I'd recommend Christian F, which is a German horrible film about uh, underage drug use, but yeah. it uses Bowie's music brilliantly, um, and he doesn't act, which is even better. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just having a look through his IMDb now, and like, yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of that before, and that was only um, that's a couple of years before Labyrinth. It looks like so. Yeah, he was obviously like doing double time then in the eighties. He he worked hard. I mean, he he brought out so many albums. Uh, he toured as often as he could. Uh, and when he wasn't producing art in one form, he was producing it in another form. So you've got to admire that work ethic. And, and this goes back to something that was really clear when I watched the, the Beatles documentary. You know, th- these guys had worked together in Hamburg as young men eight hours a day, six days a week, you're going to become a master of your craft. Yeah. And Bowie had worked so hard, he was literally at the point of quitting music when he, he took off. You know, if you work hard, you get a good result sometime. And that is a story that I think we can all uh, look up to. He was a, you know, he wasn't a posh kid. And that that's kind of the problem with a lot of music today. It's It's a lot of upper middle class children who have access to the technology making the stuff that gets publicized because their family know people in the industry whereas right 60s 70s britain it was hard-working lads trying to find an escape from the mines by making rock and roll and, and bowie sort of was part of that i think almost yeah yeah i mean it's, it's somebody that you know i, I was aware of um, in his acting career for me because he's done some incredible roles in sort of the 2000s. One that stood out to me and it's one of my favourite films and I think he's brilliant in it is The Prestige, if anyone's ever seen that. Great, great film, by the way. Yeah, phenomenal. And he plays uh, he plays a version of Nikola Tesla in it and he's brilliant. He's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, no, that was... Um, 
Am I right in thinking now? I always get this confused with the magician. That wasn't the one with Hugh Jackman in it, was it? Yeah, no, uh, it's Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale. So, so yeah. the film, for anyone who doesn't know, it's them. They play rival magicians, and it's it's a Christopher Nolan film. So right. there's some crazy sci-fi stuff in it, which is really cool. But it's all well um, executed, every bit of it. Yeah, and yeah, basically, as I say, uh, Bowie plays Nikola Tesla, um, and I think Andy Serkis is his, his assistant, and like they're paired together. Like he's just he's seamless. He's absolutely seamless. Like he just fits into that film so well. And I remember thinking at the time, like I didn't know Bowie could act. You know, I like I'd heard of him doing stuff in the eighties, but I didn't realize he was this good. <laughs> he did like a whole like Friends era film that I'd never seen, but because of you know these things coming out, I saw it on YouTube. It's terrible. I can't remember what it's called. He's in a he's in a bar with I want to say Michelle Pfeiffer, but it's not. It's somebody of that era, and it's just such a bland film he's playing like a waiter or a bartender or something <laughs> right um, but I, I didn't see that until after he passed and i'm glad because that would have sullied his reputation but you're right the prestige was brilliant i love that man full stretch that's the one yeah i find it <laughs> well, it seems highly rated on here but yeah maybe not for him <laughs> no ah oh, no it's a, a terrible terrible film so he like i say he he didn't always do everything perfectly um he he made mistakes in his career, um, but the hunger was a high point. If you're talking about comedy and um, TV series, he has for me one of the best cameos and extras. Ah, oh, I mean that cemented <laughs> it for me. That was absolutely brilliant, and I, I knew Ricky Gervais was a Bowie fan before that came out. But mm. when that came out, I saw that sort of you know the week it came out live, and I was like. Oh man, this a Ricky Gervais must have loved it. But this is the best thing ever. Mm. Um, every now and then, I watch that with like my cousins, just because it's the yeah. best bit of Bowie on TV ever. I, yeah, um, people need to look it up. I might even see if I can find it on YouTube and put it in the show notes because it's just it's an amazing bit of comedy. Just the way he's like the David Brent's character is pouring his soul to him and is like you know asking him to help him get out of this mediocre comedy that he's stuck in and asking him, you know, you're this integrity keeper, how do you do it? And David Bowie's just earnestly listening and then just out of nowhere going, chubby little fat man. <laughs> <laughs> and then just bursting into song and ripping him a new one. And he just has to sit there and take it. It's oh, so good. Hi. Hi, hi. I was just saying that um, I'm an entertainer too. Oh, yeah? Um, what do you do? I'm in a sitcom. It's called When the Whistle Blows. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Is it any good? No, it's Oh, just... Riffraff everywhere. Not going down too well, huh? It's getting six million viewers. I mean, it's it's not exactly how I meant it to be because the BBC have interfered and sort of chased ratings and made it the lowest common denominator sort of comedy, sort of catchphrases and wigs. And I, I think I've sold out to be honest. But yeah, it's difficult, isn't it, when they, to keep your integrity when you're going for that first little you know, fat man who sold his soul. The little. Little fat man who sold his dream. Chubby little loser. Chubby little loser. National joke. No, not, not chubby little loser. No. Pathetic little fat man. No one's bloody laughing. The clown that no one laughs at. They all just wish he died. It, it's brilliant. So uh, <laughs> dovetailing on both that and 
the, the current Bowie industry. Yeah. They've been running this Bowie celebration thing for the last couple of years where his pianist, Mike Garson, has got other in, you know musicians to sing his songs, live stream it during the pandemic and charge money for it. And it, it's kind of... It, there's a little bit of a bad taste for, for some of it because mm. it's not that great, some of it. Some of it is fantastic. And they got Ricky Gervais to do some bits. Uh, and one of the bits was um, where he was talking about the making of that song. Yeah. And he said, he spoke to Bowie, he said, uh, you know, I'd really like you to do something kind of, you know, a bit nostalgic, a, a, a bit like your 70s era. And Bowie, who famously had a very good sense of humour, uh, loved uh, the, the, the comic Viz, which I'm a subscriber to. So mm. that's, you know, a good barometer. But he just turned around and went, uh, yeah, all right, Ricky, I'll just effing come up with life on Mars in, in an hour, shall I? You know, so <laughs> he, he he was kind of aware of his own brilliance, but in a comedic way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, um, Ricky Gervais was brilliant um, in, in Extras. Afterlife 3 is out at the moment. I haven't mm. seen it yet, but I think that's on Netflix right now. It is, yeah. I haven't got around to it. Um, but I know we were talking, talked about off, uh, The Office and, yeah, who, who knows, Extras may come up if I do another sitcom run of... Uh, yet to decide what I'm doing with that, but <laughs> extras is the gift that keeps on giving. Though mm. I often go back to the Patrick Stewart episode, and it's <laughs> one of my favourite comedy shows of all time. I, I'm not going to lie; every now and then, just to make my dad chuckle if I ever see him, we just I'll just turn to him and go, "And I see everything." <laughs> <laughs> we both just start giggling. <laughs> but and oh. it's the way he he spins the emphasis on it like differently each time and like yeah. and, and and by this time of course i've seen everything yeah. <laughs> it just, <laughs> yeah. it just, it's the way he acts it out brilliantly and, and the again the ian mckellen episode where he, he <laughs> yeah. explains how his process for acting i i just pretend to be the person in the script it's like you're confused so <laughs> so so well yeah. done i love it i i think he is a genius when Peter Jackson's called me up and said, can you play Gandalf the wizard? And I said, and now you realise, Peter, I'm not an actual wizard. But what I did was I pretended to be. Oh. It is, that is Gervais's finest hour for me. I mean, Afterlife has mm. been good. The Office was brilliant and span out a whole kind of US office. Yeah. The extras for me was, I think, 12, maybe 13, if you include the Christmas yeah. episodes of just encapsulated genius. It's it's a um, it's a very nice companion piece to The Office. If I think if people watch lovely. it and like, you yeah. want to see, yeah, similar kind of thing, but with some incredible cameos that like we've just been uh, yeah listing off there. Go and check it out. It's amazing. But, oh, goodness me. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, I love extras, and that's what we're talking about today. My love of Ricky Gervais. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yes, I guess dovetailing back into into Bowie and that. I mean, it, it, I, I like it about the cameo as well. Actually, with with extras, is in that moment as hilarious as it is, it was a nice um, use of him because the character of Andy Millman looks up to him as someone who has kept his integrity, and I think. Uh, that's again something we've kind of touched upon, isn't it? With with Bowie, as we said, all of his eras, and okay, not all of them are going to work. But then again, if you're just constantly churning out content and creating, not everything's going to be perfect or as good as before. But I think that's one thing no one can take away from him is, from a creative point of view, he kept his integrity. You know, he did things the way he wanted he to do right up to the end. 
he did. And actually, he went out on an absolute blinder. Um, and yeah. there's some really interesting stuff about the last album, which I which I will touch on. But mm. I remember. So, firstly, the song Black Star came out. Um, because it was part of The Last Panthers, a, a TV show. So I sort of heard snippets of it. I was like, oh, what's he up to here? And then when the album dropped, which was literally a week before he he died, mm. I was like, this is weird, but genius, but weird. And then when he passed away, I was like, oh, Christ, he mm. knew what was coming, and this is his message to us all about it. And And then suddenly, I mean, I can feel the hairs on my like the back of my neck going as I say it it's like he left such a brilliant leaving note to his friends and fans and family it was like this is no artist has done this in, in music yeah to, to my knowledge in this way I'm sure they have but it was brilliant and it was so cryptic as well when you look at the video for Lazarus there are messages in there that allude to the black magic I spoke about earlier so on the cover of Station to Station, one of my favourite albums, where he, he references Alistair Crowley, the famous black magician of, of UK um, history, he's wearing this striped suit and he's trying to work out the Kabbalah or something, which is a, you know, black magic stuff. I don't really understand it. Right. In the video for um, Lazarus, he's wearing the same striped suit and he's returning into the closet. And there's a lot of people who say, this is more than just a visual, this is the old me going back somewhere. This is actually referring something ritualistic in black magic. And I was like, seriously? But the clues are there. And then you've got Black Star. Um, and again, a Black Star is a name of a, a particular kind of cancer um, mm -hmm. X-ray. It's also... Uh, there was some symbolism with um, Elvis, who shared his birthday, of course. Yeah. He, he'd, he'd done a song, Black Star. But also there was some occult reference. And there's a a skull with jewels in it, which, again, is very occulty. And, and there were just all these clues. And I just kind of think to myself, Bowie was brilliant, and he knew that we would all be digging into this. So he just threw it all in there just to throw us off the scent. You know, mm. he didn't have any special wisdom. There was no occult reference. But... He was going to leave it there for us all to chew over for years, knowing that we would. And that is exactly what fans have been doing since he passed. But yeah, mm. Black Star was just magnificent as an album. One or two absolute rubbish tracks, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but the the like the main two, Black Star and Lazarus, are probably the saddest songs ever because of, you know, what happened around them. Yeah, you just you have to admire the work ethic as well to do all of that. Like you say, knowing what he knew it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the Chadwick Boseman, you know, when he sadly passed away and it was like he was still working on all these movies and acting and you think, how does somebody in do his that? Yeah, literally. Uh, you know, you think, wait a minute, I've literally just got into, like, I love Chadwick Boseman. I loved mm. a lot of his work um, and, and I was like, I've just got into him. He's, like, brilliant and mm. now he's taken away. And, and I think Bo was much longer but it, he's left it on an absolute, like, question mark, not a full stop. There's a whole question mark over his career, which is, this is what I meant, now go back and look at it. And I think, yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. It's it's an impressive legacy to leave behind. Um, yeah, and I I just think, 
it's absolutely phenomenal. In fact, I, it's interesting as well because his, I feel like he kept a lot of his um, his private life sort of out he, of it, which is something I, I respect as well from artists. I'm not a fan of celebrities and people that are just shoving their kids and their families and dragging them through, you know, all these photo shoots and in, right. in front of the paparazzi. He strikes me as somebody that was quite happy to keep all that at arm's length. Well, there's a lot of weird dynamics because he had a son um, who was christened Zoe, who then became um, Duncan... Um, Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones, the film director. Yep. Um, who Who is very talented in his own way, although I haven't seen the Warcraft film, but I loved Moon. Oh, Moon's um, fantastic, yeah. Moon is, is such a great film. Mm. Uh, and he kept him out of the spotlight, but also he had custody of him. Now, if you think about the mechanics of, like, divorce was still quite a exotic proposition in the 1980s, I guess, when he got divorced from, from Angela. And certainly custody would generally go to the mum. So there must have been reasons, and I believe, and I'm not clear, I don't want to go into this, but I, I don't believe Duncan's ever had a relationship with his mum. So you have to question what the whole family dynamic was. But it was all kept completely away from the spotlight until it couldn't be kept away. And I, like you say, I totally respect that. And the same with his marriage to Iman and their, their daughter. No pictures of her came out whilst he was alive. Now he's dead, more and more a, a sort of finding their way out. But whilst he was alive, he was super private. Uh, famously would just, like, breeze around New York in a flat cap. No one would even recognise him, which for a star, has got to be some sort of, like, heaven. Um, mm. Because I can't think of anything worse than just being recognised all the time by people who just want to stand near you and take pictures. It would be awful. Yeah, I can imagine that would get quite exhausting in a lot of ways after a while. So, yeah, I just I have a lot of respect for somebody like that. Yeah. Who can, who can hold his own and just sort of... He knows where to keep things and the right priorities, you know? Totally. And also, like I say, he, he was a great... He was a great artist and consumer of art, but also he was always finger on his pulse, both business and technology-wise. Mm. Again, you know, he created BowieNet in, I think, 1999, which okay. was a, like a, an early internet forum, uh, kind of like Facebook just for Bowie fans. He released music via it that was exclusive. He did CD-ROMs and, you know, stuff in the 90s that seemed like it would be there forever, which clearly it wasn't. Um, and he also, to relaunch his career, sold bonds in himself called Bowie Bonds. Yeah. Where, you know, essentially he refinanced himself out of a, a, a position of some financial uh, rubbish, I think. Mm. And again, you know, an absolute innovator of things like that, which you've got to give the businessman side of him kudos for. There's a very famous interview with him and Paxman about the internet out there where he says about, you know, how important it's going to be. He was right. So, yeah, visionary on every planet. No, level. Yeah. Planet yeah. as well. I don't know. Absolutely. And I, I believe I, he was also a painter as well. He's big into his art, which is not surprising, I think. <laughs> no, he and again, always was a painter. Um, like, again, interestingly, his art teacher was Peter Frampton's dad, oh. which is how... He got to know Peter Frampton, who I think is he in the year beneath him or above him at school. Um, and touchingly, uh, Frampton's just released a really nice 
instrumental album and he did an instrumental of Loving the Alien, which is one of Bowie's only decent songs off the aforementioned mid-80s horror story tonight. Um, and Frampton released a little video of, of him playing it and right at the end you've got this beautiful picture of, of Bowie, Peter Frampton's dad Owen and Peter all together and you just think sometimes this art has not just been about one person but it's like almost families are connected it's it's mm. beautiful and I, I love that kind of human side so yeah uh, but yeah definitely an artist on every level and, and someone you know as a as a creative myself I've got my own little creative company quick plug amplify-creative.com we're a little marketing company um, I've always made graphics that's why you know i design pedals for wampa as well as as part of what i do um always wanted to be a painter always wanted to be a musician always wanted to do something artistic and creative and i think bowie has been part of the inspiration for that so really yeah. uh, always for sure i mean i did i did a the, the famous cover of aladdin sane which is him with the lightning strike mm -hmm. uh, i did a painting of that for my GCSE because, you know, we didn't have many pictures to copy off back then. Uh, and my daughter did the same um, maybe six years ago. And she did it off her own back. And I just thought, isn't that wonderful that we both painted the same thing because it inspired us because it's such a striking image. She did a much better job of it than me. <laughs> and, of course, we're in the, like, social media era. I was able to tweet it and get Mike Garson, who played piano on that album, to, like, you know, say, hey, that's really cool. I was like, this is, that's my life made. Amazing. So, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> um, amazing. Um, I do regret never, like, obviously meeting him uh, or getting to know him, but they say never meet your heroes. So maybe that was the right thing. Who knows? I don't know. I, I Like I said to, to Blake before, I feel like it's more of a case of choose your heroes carefully. And, yeah. you know, and I think also you've got to remember they're just people. I know with mm -hmm. someone like Bowie, it would be hard because... Uh, as we've discussed, you know, he covered so much on so many fronts and, you know, his his impact is still being felt today. So it is one of those, like, you know, it's like meeting a, be uh, meeting a beetle, for example, or something like that. You you want to freak out, but you have to remember they're just people. And I'm sure, and I'm sure, like you said, he's wandering around New York in his cap. I'm sure he just wants to be treated like a person and not be harassed and, you know, idolized too much. Well, he was just David Jones from Brixton at the end of the day. That's what he wanted to be known as yeah. uh, when, when, he, when he wasn't on stage. And, you know, he was a down-to-earth guy. And like I said, what I love about him is I discovered that he loved Viz, which <laughs> I started reading when I was like 13 and like toilet humour was a bit naughty and all of that. And I've loved it ever since. And to know that he was a subscriber to, I was like, we're on the same page, like at least in one way here. Yeah, yeah. You'd have something to talk about if you ever got the chance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, sadly, that will never happen. But um, we, we were really lucky on the Chasing Tone podcast. Uh, we we're able to kind of talk to a few people, one of whom recently we had was Paul Cudderford who's the guitarist with uh, Holy Holy, which is essentially a, a, a Bowie supergroup with some of his sort of ex-musicians. And that's yeah. just fantastic to talk to people like that. He works with Tony Visconti and, and Woody Woodmansey, his original drummer, and that's just awesome to even have that remote connection via, uh, you know, chasing tone to Paul is, is, is lovely. So, yeah, I, again, music is the gift that keeps on giving because if you're a nerd, you can always nerd out about music. Absolutely. And I, I think something we can agree on here with Bowie especially is he's got such a diverse range and so many songs that 
you know, if you're listening and you've never really given him the time of day, I think just go and have a, a comb through. You're guaranteed to find something that's going to land with you. Totally think so. Um, I think there is a Bowie for every generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I, I'm curious, Richard, do you have anything else you, you want to talk about with, with Bowie? That's uh, a really, I, I mean, honestly, there's just literally every part of my life is kind of punctuated, as I say, with some Bowie. I've covered, I, I mean, the first concert I ever went to on my own, as well as the first concert I ever went to, was, was Bowie. I saw him again in 1991, I think, in Docklands, um, which was pretty, pretty cool with Adrian Bielu. Um Yeah, I, I just. I, like I say, I think the thing that's always surprised me with him is the depth in his music. Is just always being able to find something new. Like I listen to something, get something new out of it. Um, that is unrivaled for me. I don't. I, I've I've got a couple of other bands that I absolutely adore, but Bowie is the one that kind of hangs them all together. Like I've I mentioned before, I'm a fan of people like Bauhaus, Joy Division, The Cure. They all have a love of Bowie through them too. So he's kind of like a barometer for things I'll like. I think if I find acts that have been influenced by Bowie, I normally really enjoy them. And a, a recent one that I really got into was Arcade Fire, who oh. re- really kind of like hung off the Bowie thing. In fact, he's on, I think it's uh, Black... I forget the name. Is it Black Mirror? That's the Charlie Brooker TV show. Yes, that is, Yeah. <laughs> I'm old. My memory is not as as good as it used to be. But, um, uh, yeah, he's all over their fourth album, I think, and was a big supporter of them. He he was always a big supporter of, like, new upcoming artists. And I think that's really important because especially people of my generation kind of be locked in with, you know, stuff we listened to 20 years ago. But actually, music has to keep evolving for it to keep itself relevant and and bowie was always looking for new artists so the Mm. biggest takeaway i've ever taken from bowie is never be frightened of new art and new artists i think that's a really good uh a good takeaway and a nice place to i think wrap things up (laughs) like i say i could talk for hours but i i know you've got some record holders i'm not even going to try i hope i haven't talked too much and waffled on i'm sure i have but uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. It's been a pleasure to to tell some of my stupid stories. No, I, I love it. And it's, you know, it, it's again, it's one of those topics that when you threw it out there, I, I got really excited and I thought, yes, that would be brilliant. You know, I've, I've always wanted to know more. So I've I've learned a lot and really enjoyed it. And I have no doubt the listeners feel the same way. I hope so. Uh, and like I said, if you're going to take one album away to listen to uh, today, go for Station to Station. You'll not be disappointed. All right, that sounds brilliant. So I guess really all that's left to say is, uh, is where can the good people find you? So um, the Chasing Tone podcast comes out every week uh, where I uh, join Brian and Blake, Brian Wampler, who runs Wampler Pedals, who I also work for. Um, they release this podcast where we try and talk about guitars every week, but invariably go off into the weeds and talk about completely random stuff. So look for the Chasing Tone podcast. <laughs> And then, yeah, quick plug for my own company, as I say, amplify-creative.com. We're just a small UK-based web design company, um, but we also do pedal design, graphic design, you name it, we design it. So, uh, And that's me. 
Awesome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Richard. Thank you so much for having me, Harley. It's been absolutely awesome. My pleasure. And there we have it. A huge thank you to Richard for coming onto the show and sharing your love of all things David Bowie. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, make sure you go and give Richard a follow over on the Chasing Tone podcast. I've linked to where you can find that in the show notes. It's well worth checking out. It's not just for musicians and guitar players. It's just a really fun podcast to get into, especially if you like music. It is that little extra bonus there. But really, the uh, chemistry between Richard Blake, a previous guest, and Brian Wampler is just so much fun. As I said before, it's one of my regular listens, and I cannot recommend it enough. And also, I would highly recommend Wampler Pedals. I mean, it's a company that I think is fantastic. Their designs with pedals are absolutely brilliant. So if you're like me and you're a guitar nerd, well worth going over there and checking out their awesome designs. I've linked all of that in the show notes for you as well. Speaking of art, if you enjoy the logo and the Twitter banners that you see for this podcast, then you can head over to the links in the show notes for Alex, who designs all of it. You can reach out to him, commission your very own artwork. I can guarantee that if you do so, you will not be disappointed. Speaking of that wonderful artwork, man, I'm on fire with these today, aren't I? You can head over to the official Tee Public store for the show, where that absolutely delightful artwork features on a ton of products, including T-shirts, mugs, laptop cases, phone cases, so on and so forth. If you fancy supporting the show and you like the look of the design and want to wear it, I guess, extensively, then by all means, head over there, check it out. I will greatly appreciate your support. You can find the links to that in the show notes as well. And last but not least, I just want to say a huge thank you to you for listening to this episode, for checking it out. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe, follow, share it, tell a friend, all that good stuff. It really, really helps independent podcasts such as myself to keep going. You can leave five-star reviews and ratings. If you're feeling generous enough to do so, then I would not only appreciate it, but I want to thank you in person. So please make sure that you tell me you've done so. You can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, or email, or provided in the show notes, of course, and you will earn a shout-out on the podcast. It really is the least that I can do. That is it for me. I'll be back again in only a few weeks' time with a completely different guest on a completely different subject. So until next time, stay tuned and stay safe.